Next Monday, September 13th and 14th, Honduran political prisoners Edwin Espinel and Raul Alvarez will stand trial in Tegucigalpa. Accused of three trumped-up charges, Edwin and Raul face going back to prison if they are found guilty for 15 to 30 years. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. This podcast shares human rights stories from Honduras and connects them with global issues and North American policy. I'm your host, Karen Spring, a longtime human rights activist that has lived in Honduras for over a decade. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. So we just took a two-month break to chill a little bit. And in that time, since the last show, I went to Canada to visit family, and I'm now back in Tegucigalpa. So today I'm going to talk about a pretty personal human rights story, which is the upcoming trial of my partner, Edwin Espinal, and political prisoner, Raul Alvarez. As I'm recording this, we are less than one week away from their trial date, which is scheduled for next Monday and Tuesday, or September 13th and 14th. Because of COVID and the backlog of the courts in Honduras, I originally thought the date of their trial would be changed again, but it looks like the court is at least planning for it to move forward and to happen as scheduled. Now, just the thought that this trial is going to happen and the trial's right around the corner makes my stomach roll. I'm nervous, and Edwin and Raul are obviously even more nervous. In normal circumstances, I think going to trial for anyone that's been wrongfully accused of a crime is nerve-wracking. And in the current political context in Honduras, and with the lack of judicial independence, it feels even worse. It's worse because Honduras has another general elections in less than three months. Edwin and Raul's case stems from the last elections, almost four years ago in 2017. I'm worried because with this context in the country, the Juan Orlando Hernandez government may want to send a message to anyone in Honduras thinking about protesting any sort of election-related issues that might come up. They could use Edwin and Raul's trial to do that by finding them guilty and then sending them to prison. This will tell others that protesting will not be tolerated. And if found guilty, Edwin and Raul face up to 15 to 30 years. I think what also makes me really nervous about the upcoming trial is that both Edwin and Raul have faced years of political persecution. The political persecution indicates that this isn't just a legal battle. It's also a very political battle, if not an entirely political battle. Like most people that are criminalized for protesting, Edwin and Raul have been targets of repression, of criminalization, and violence several times. For years, Edwin and Raul have been clear priority targets for the military, the police, the public prosecutor's office, and the judiciary. In 2010, Edwin was tortured by the police in his neighborhood. He was arrested, covered in pepper spray, taken to a clandestine location, and tasered for hours before being dropped off at a police station. In 2013, 
his family's house was raided by the military police about a month before the 2013 elections. The police justified the raid by saying that Edwin was a gang member and had guns and drugs in his house. They obviously found nothing, but left the house totally ransacked and destroyed. Take a look at my house. What do you notice about that house? There is a flag of the National Front of Popular Resistance, right? After the coup, we declared ourselves to be in total opposition. That is why they raided my house. And despite making formal legal complaints against the judge and against the prosecutor that allowed and ordered the raid, the prosecutor's office has done absolutely nothing to investigate it. Raul Alvarez has also suffered attacks as well. Last November, Raul was stabbed in his neighborhood by a National Party supporter. The profile that Raul has gained as a political prisoner and a vocal opponent of the government has turned him into a target of violence. After the attack, Raul almost died in hospital. But thankfully, he recovered. He lost one eye, full movement of his hand, and feeling in one of his legs. Now, like I mentioned, Edwin and Raul face 15 to 30 years in prison if they're found guilty of the three crimes they're accused of. They're accused of aggravated arson, aggravated property damage, and use of homemade explosives. Originally, when they were first arrested, the public prosecutor's office also wanted to accuse them of terrorism, criminal association, and attempted murder. But thank goodness those charges didn't stick. Many ask me the details about the arrest. Ed and Raul were arrested just days after a protest occurred in Tegucigalpa on January 12, 2018, almost four years ago. Thousands of people participated in those protests, and they were on the streets protesting the stolen 2017 election and the illegal re-election of Juan Orlando Hernandez. The protest started at the Teaching University in Tegucigalpa and marched close to the location of the old presidential palace located on a major boulevard in the capital city. Now, just before reaching the presidential palace, the Honduran military set up a huge blockade and started repressing the protesters. Live rounds were fired, like they had in several occasions in protests around the country immediately after the elections. Several buildings in the area around the protests were damaged and vandalized, including the Marriott Hotel building. Days after the protest, Raul Alvarez was arrested. Then a few days after Raul, Edwin was arrested as well. Edwin was arrested on a Friday evening. By Saturday at noon, he was put before a military judge inside a military base and then sent directly to La Tolva Prison, a maximum security jail located in southeastern Honduras. After spending the weekend in prison, two days later, on the Monday, Edwin and Raul were taken back to the capital city for their initial hearing, which is kind of like a mini-trial. The same judge that sent them to prison heard the arguments of the prosecutor and then ordered their pretrial detention and sent them back to the Tolva. Now, I remember this weekend really, really well. I remember when Edwin was arrested. I remember the panic. And I remember how fast it all happened. Edwin and Raul's legal team didn't even have any time to review the legal files as they only had two days to prepare for the initial hearing and both days that they had to prepare were weekend days when no state institutions or the prosecutor's office were open. 
They remained in prison in Latolva for 19 hard and difficult months, and we fought for their release and achieved it in August of 2019. Now, those 19 months were really, really hard for Edwin's family, for myself, and also for Raul's family. As we are preparing again for another step in this process, we know that this case isn't just about Edwin and Raul. It's not just about the damage to the Marriott Hotel, and it's not just about protesting the 2017 elections. Edmund Raoul's case is just one of many cases of political persecution that's carried out in Honduras by the Honduran government against vocal opponents. The regime continues to send land and water defenders to prison and other individuals involved in protests. Currently, there are 11 vocal protesters in prison in different parts of the country. These are cases that are well known by the national and international human rights community. The pattern of going after vocal opponents of the government's policies and their behavior is also part of the same pattern that led to the assassination of indigenous leader Berta Cáceres, is part of the same pattern that makes Honduras one of the most dangerous places to be a human rights and land defender, an environmentalist, a lawyer, and a journalist. As the trial date approaches, I've been running around doing all these last-minute tasks that have to be done before the trial starts. These include finally getting a full copy of the legal file from the court. Now, this took several years and basically the pressure that the trial is less than a week away for judicial authorities to find someone to walk the physical copy of the legal file to the photocopier room in the Supreme Court to make a copy. We are also fighting for the court hearing to be broadcasted live on the court's Facebook or Twitter. Now, this might seem a kind of odd for folks in North America, but this is how the Honduran court system are making high profile cases available to the public. Some judges aren't letting observers into their courtrooms because of COVID. So since trials have to be open to the public by law, we are hoping and pushing that the judiciary live broadcast the trial because really it'll be the only way that international human rights observers and possibly family members will be able to observe it. If you're interested in following the trial, the actions plan to support it, or for more background on Edwin Raul's case, head to Honduras Now's social media accounts. We will also be posting on free Edwin Espinel Libertad's Facebook and Twitter. Now, if you want more background information about Edwin Raul's imprisonment and what it took to free them after 19 months, check out episode seven called A Week to Remember, Freeing the Political Prisoners. So for today's show, I'm going to play an interview with my partner, Edwin Espinel. The interview was conducted the day after Edwin was released from La Tolva and the day after he and Raul suspended a five-day hunger strike inside La Tolva. At the time, Edwin and Raul were imprisoned. Two other political prisoners, Gustavo Cáceres and Romel Herrera, were also in prison. Both were thankfully released shortly after Edwin and Raul got out on August 9th, 2019. The interview with Edwin was done by anthropologist Adrian Pine. Adrian was here when Edwin and Raul were released and kindly gave me permission to play this interview. Edwin, we are so happy to have you out of that prison. First of all, if you could just tell me a little bit about what your experience on the inside was like. The experience inside are like uh, horrible, like a torture, like emotionally torture, physically torture, psychological torture. In my case, because we're in a, um, we're in a process, right? In a legal process. 
I've never been in a jail before. And that's what makes it harder for us, for the political prisoners, like uh, Raul, Rommel, me, Gustavo, and Progreso. It's uh, way harder. Just the fact that we are mixed with all the rest of the population inside, just that makes it harder. So when you first went in, what was your experience like in the prison? So you, you said, first of all, you weren't, exper you weren't expecting to be in there for a long time, right? Yes. I mean, the first experience I had is the most horrible part because they put me on a isolation cell. I spent one month an hour. It's a cell, a small cell with only like a square window, like little window like this. And the only thing inside was a mattress, little mattress like this thick. And a toilet? No, no toilet, nothing. It had to be on a plastic bottle. So. Coming, from, coming, coming from the, uh, the court, directly to the jail, and the jail puts you right inside a um, isolation cell. That's a um, way of torture. That yeah. sounds horrifying. Mm -hmm. And from there, then what happened? After uh, a month, they sent me to the uh, area where the rest of the population ate. And then that, uh, that area is also, you know, living with people that are already condemned, people that are being sentenced by horrible crimes. I make it make it harder to. So this is a new style of maximum security prisons that just opened a few years ago, right? Yes. Um, what? How do you think that changes prison culture, and what are they trying to do with these maximum security prisons in Honduras? It's really sad because they're supposed to, with those jails, they're they're supposed to improve the security, comparing with the other penitentiary center because they're all they're like. Um, really doesn't have the, con the, the right conditions to, to uh, keep a lot of people. So they're like overpopulated. So they built these prisons supposedly to improve people their sentence to have a better conditions like in order to rehabilitate. But they only improve the infrastructure, but they, they haven't improved like a human conditions. And can you tell me a little bit about what those conditions were like? So I'm interested, for example, in the food you ate, the access to water, the um, sanitary situation, access to health care. Yeah, when we talk about access to health care, there is no conditions at all in there. Just like, just like the rest of the country. The opposition is being on the street, protesting, defending the, the public health system, right? And it's exactly the same situation in there. There is no medicines. The medical attention a very, very poor medical attention. It takes so long to take you to the doctor. It takes so long. After you ask, inside every module, there is coordinators, right? The same prisoners. They coordinate the rest of the population inside the module. And then the, the people have to has to ask to the coordinators that they need to go see the doctor. So that means it will take you like four weeks or sometimes six weeks to go to, to go to see the doctor if you're lucky. So it depends on whether the coordinator likes you or not. And they're exactly. a fellow prisoner. Exactly. Wow. And in terms of the health conditions, um, I heard that there were tuberculosis outbreaks and other outbreaks that um, are really particular to prison sanitary conditions in certain ways. Can you speak about um, about health risks that prisoners faced in La Tolva? Yes. After I spent one month in an isolated uh, cell and I was sent to that area, 
and then I find out that uh, there is uh, there was a huge tuberculosis um, spreading on the rest of the population, and not just tuberculosis, also there was virus that everybody was sick, was like a fever, as like a cold, sore throat, and a lot of people was uh, sick when I get there. But the worst thing was the uh, about the tuber- tuberculosis, and they don't have uh, like uh, measurements to control that uh, health problem. So the, we were all mixed people that they're not doesn't have tuberculosis yet with the people that are already sick, and as it was so easy, you could see like how the um, people that are not sick yet, and then like a couple of weeks later, they were diagnosed with tuberculosis, and, and a lot of people was get the tuberculosis. So there were no quarantine measures or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, what uh, what kind of access did you have? What was your food and water situation like? How much water did you get on a daily basis? And was it clean? And uh, and what did you get to eat? On the, um, on the first month I spent there, the water situation was, it was a, like a crisis. We drink from the pipe, right, from the sink and shower with the same water. Yeah, and the water was like like a brown color. And then a lot of people get sick, like uh, with diarrhea, sore throat, you know, problems, right, because of the water. We drink and shower with that water. People got sick easily. What were the bathrooms like? The bathroom is uh, only one toilet for nine people in every cell. So there's no privacy to use the toilet. The toilet's like in the middle of the, the end of the cell. There's no walls, so you just have to sit in there and in front of everybody else. And yeah, I mean, they have this modern style of uh, um, toilets. The same toilets that the prisons in the United States and Canada has, like um, is uh, stainless steel with uh, air pressure. Yep. I think it worked, but the thing is, we could only use it like twice a day. Once in the morning, once at the, the end of the afternoon. That was at the beginning, uh, later after we brought this, and then they, we could use it like a three times. Once in the morning, once at the uh, noon, third time at the end of the afternoon. The condition was improving very, very slowly. You know, the more that we protest and demand improvements inside, and then they were giving us a little bit. So they responded, so they gave you things when you protested, but also, I mean, how did the guards treat you in general? If, if you did something they didn't like, if you, know, if you were protesting and they weren't happy with it, or they didn't want to give you what you wanted? We barely have contact with the police. Inside the uh, modulos, the, who controls the security and the, the different issues inside, are the same coordinators. So the coordinators, and these are prisoners themselves who are in prison for organized crime, other mm-hmm. forms of violent crime. Yeah. What kinds of organizations do they belong to? The MS-13 and the Gang 18. Very, very violent uh, members of those gangs. Uh, some people are like sentenced by like uh, more than 50 killing. So they worked as hitmen or they, they yeah, killed they were people hitmen. themselves? Yeah, that's the people that control the rest of the population inside. And what did they, how did they treat you as political prisoners? What did they think about you? They always see me as a threat because I was, I was very demanding 
about the human rights violations in Zion. And they see me as a threat because I was getting uh, human rights organizations' attention. And then human rights organization comes to visit me or check on me how, about my, um, my situation inside. And then they, they start seeing me as a threat, a threat in their um, benefits. Just because there were gangs members and they're coordinate inside, they got benefit from the people who, who uh, managed the uh, penitentiary center. And so what happened when they started to see you as a threat? Well, I received uh, death threats since the beginning. From fellow prisoners? Yes, from those uh, gangs, gangs members. I received death threats. And um, yeah, that make harder because you have to see them all the time. When you need to go to see the doctor, you have to ask them. When you need to get a haircut, you have to ask them. When you need soap to shower, whatever you need, you know. So the- these are maximum security military-run prisons, but... Um, but the gang members still control everything on the inside. So uh, was there ever uh, repression on the part of the security guards uh, um, inside the prison? Were there ever repressive measures taken against the prisoners? Yes, because uh, we were demanding water uh, supply improvement. We were demanding better medical attention. And we were demanding also um, better food because the food was very uh, poor. We protest inside, and then we every time we protest, and the police come and, and throw like a tear gas inside the prison. And that's very dangerous because they, it's very close area when they throw that tear gas in there. So that was when you were inside your cells, you would you would receive the tear gassing. Yeah, when they when they when they shoot uh, tear gas. Everybody goes inside their cell because it's the safest area where you can go. If you stay in a common area, and then you get more tear gas. Did that happen on numerous occasions? Yes. You mentioned that the toilets were a U.S. make, and basically the entire prison is following a U.S. model of maximum security prison. Yeah. What, um, what do you think uh, are the areas in which U.S. corporations might be profiting off of the prison, for example, phone calls or different contractors or training or anything like that? Yes, I think it's in many ways they're getting profits because they built this whole new prison system, right? But um, they're not working like the way it's supposed to be. Like uh, they have workshops, for example. They have laundry area where they have these industrial big uh, machines and they have also many areas, like one area to have one store where people can go and buy something they need. But all those areas are completely empty. Like the workshops are the size of one quarter of the whole prison. The workshops are big. That whole structure is empty. They don't use it. And the people are just sitting in there, not doing anything during the whole day. And when they have this all these uh, facilities to use it to rehabilitate people and help people, right, to stay busy for mental health, for physical health, and for different reasons, but they don't do it. And then I ask myself, and then why they build this whole thing? Why did the millions of dollars in this infrastructure and they're not using it? That's when, you know, you question the whole system and why they invest. The government invests all the money in a poor country like this, where we need more medicine, we need more like hospitals, we need more like schools, we need jobs opportunities. That's what we don't get. But instead what we get? Jails. Like a maximum security jails. In a poor country where most of the people, I, f- I find out in there there's a huge level of um, 
people that doesn't even know how to read, people that doesn't know how to write, that's very sad. Inside the prison. Inside so it doesn't sound like there was any education or rehabilitation going on in there. No. There's no program. Such a program in there doesn't exist at all. Which makes it so sad, you know, because they invest on infrastructure, but they don't invest on humans, you know, mm-hmm. to uh, improve the humans, to improve their life or to get ready to once they go out, you know, once they go free. The state the responsibility is to make sure that people, when they, they pay their, their crimes, their sentence, they were supposed to go out rehabilitated. For the whole past week, there's, as you know, been people fasting in solidarity with a hunger strike that you and your fellow prisoners, Raul Alvarez and Romel Herrera, were on. And people have been organizing within Honduras and also internationally on a very large scale to fight for your freedom as political prisoners who have been arbitrarily detained in pretrial detention. Do you have any message for for the people who were fighting for your freedom? So many words for uh, that I would like to say to all the people that uh, all the organizations that are supporting United States, in Canada, in Europe. And um, we are very, very grateful. We really appreciate it, what, what they have done. We know that the Honduran judiciary system doesn't work. Without their support, we will never gonna will be able to leave that place. Now um, I can dream about someday getting my freedom. I'm not free yet, but I choose like a temporary. I still have the court date and follow the the trial, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'm gonna I'm gonna be free someday or I'm gonna go back to the jail someday. But um, we're gonna keep fighting, and I hope the people out there and those amazing organizations in the United States, in Canada, they have support us, and also in Honduras too. There is organizations, amazing people that are there. They keep their campaign to support us, and uh, it's a very strong campaign. We want to thank them, and that um. Hopefully someday we can, you know, in person, hug them and, and give them our thanks for everything they have done. They have done an amazing job. Without their support, we will never will be able to leave that jail. And also, you know, the, um, I am confident and I have witnesses inside the jail that uh, they have plans to kill us inside because this uh, government has get a lot of problems with the opposition, right? And so they have plans for us inside, but uh, thanks, thanks to all the people's support, I am out now, I can defend myself um, uh, free, and, and I'm also, I'm gonna keep fighting for my friends, Romel, Raul Alvarez, and Gustavo Cáceres, who is, who is seeing Progreso. And I hope we can still count on or international organization on their support, because that's the only way we can get justice in this country. That's the only way, with their support. But if we do it by ourselves, and here, it's way harder. There's no way to get justice in this country, where the, uh, the system, judiciary system, is very corrupt. Thank you. Okay, so one quick last question. Um, You and the others have been criminalized for protesting against um, the Juan Orlando Hernandez dictatorship, uh, against the privatization of healthcare and education, against the coup, against um, all of all of these interrelated things. Um, uh, Given what you've been through, are are you going to stop uh, protesting now? 
no, I will never stop uh, uh, protesting as long as there is uh, injustices, there is corruption, bad people that uh, make decisions for this country. And as long as uh, that people in power that are uh, accused, accused by as a narco trafficker, as an organized crime, uh, I, can't, I can't stop uh, raising my voice against that people because um, it's not about me, it's about uh, all the Honduran people. So that was an interview with political prisoner Edwin Espinel and the voice of anthropologist Adrian Pine, who conducted the interview on August 10th of 2019. Like I mentioned, if you're interested in taking action to support Edwin, Raul, and well, myself as well, you can find all the information about the upcoming actions on the Honduras Now's Facebook and Twitter. We're asking folks to share information on social media, participate in an online action to contact your congressional reps. And if you want, you can join us outside the Supreme Court this Monday, September 13th at 8.30 a.m. I will be there, Edwin and Raul's family will be there, and the Committee for the Freedom of Political Prisoners in Honduras will also be there. You can also monitor the trial on Monday and Tuesday with live updates. Just check out the free Edwin Espinal Libertad Facebook and Twitter. Edwin and Raul and all their supporters will walk into the trial with their heads held high. We shall see what will happen. That's the show for today. This is your host, Karen Spring, signing off. Wish us luck at the trial and hasta pronto. Si morimos pensando en tu amor, defendiendo tu santa bandera, y en tus pilegas gloriosos cubiertos, serán muchos Honduras tus muertos.